millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, I'm Nate. And this is Timeline Tapes, the podcast brought to you by the World History YouTube channel Timeline. Here we take the documentaries and TV shows from our channel, and with some clever editing, turn them into podcasts. This week we're jumping right back into our exploration of the Spartan culture. This is part two of a three-part series, so you can find the previous episode on our feed. In the last episode, we explored the rise of Sparta, and how their reputation of invincibility came to be. This time, we're going to look into the causes of tension between the powers of Athens and Sparta. The voice of the show is Bettany Hughes, who's in Greece as she leads us through the ancient history of the city. For Sparta and Athens, the experience of the Persian invasion had been very different. Hundreds of miles from the front line, in the idyllic countryside of Laconia, the Spartan homeland had been untouched by the war. Whereas Athens itself had been invaded and its Acropolis destroyed, here in Sparta, in the rugged, enclosed peninsula of the Peloponnese, the war had seemed a distant affair. With peace restored, the Spartans quickly returned to their usual routines, the pursuit of physical and military perfection. This society was disciplined, obedient, and above all, willing to sacrifice the needs of the family and of the individual for the good of the state, if necessary, to die for the cause. The cause was simple. Protection of the utopia the Spartans thought they'd created. To do that, they needed to produce more of their famed hoplite warriors. But beyond that, the Spartans had few other ambitions. All they wanted was to maintain the status quo. But in post-war Athens, things were changing fast. The trauma of occupation, followed by the euphoria of victory, was transforming the city. Before the war, the foundations of democracy had been laid, but it was democracy in name only. In reality, it was men with money who had the say. Now, a massive power shift was taking place. Welcome to the cradle of democracy, an Athenian trireme. At the hour of crisis for Greece, it was the poor of Athens who'd squeezed down onto these cramped rowing benches and sent the triremes smashing into the hulls of their enemies. These were the have-nots of the city, the bottom of the political pecking order. But after Salamis, all that changed. The oarsmen who'd endured the sweat and the stench and the terror of being down here 
had won a historic victory and now they wanted to have their say. Athenian democracy was galvanized. The champion of the Athenian oarsman was Pericles. He was a wealthy aristocrat, exactly the sort who'd run the so-called democracy in Athens for generations. He was also shrewd enough to sense that things had changed and ambitious enough to put himself at the head of that change. Pericles could see that in order to secure power, he needed to distance himself from the nobles, play to the gallery, ingratiate himself with the people. He was a formidable orator, and his powers of argument and speech won them over. But it wasn't just what Pericles said that impressed the citizens of Athens. He designed a mass civic building program that in effect would be a job creation scheme for the city's poor. All kinds of enterprises and demands will be created, which will provide inspiration for every art, find employment for every hand, and transform the whole people into wage earners, so that the city will decorate and maintain herself at the same time. True to his word, Pericles opened the coffers of Athens to pay for public festivals and grandiose monuments like the Parthenon. But most significantly of all, he introduced state salaries for juries and war service. Now the oarsmen could trade in their rowing benches for seats of power in the city. For the first time in Athens, democracy was really coming to mean government by the people. And this is where its voice could be heard, the Athenian Agora. If the Acropolis was the soul of Athens, then the Agora was its beating heart. It was here that the day-to-day -day life of Athens took place. Artisans and lawyers, shopkeepers and philosophers, men from all walks of life rubbed shoulders here, creating the buzz and bustle of the most democratic city in Greece. Official posts were open to everyone, irrespective of their wealth and status, and you were expected to pull your weight and participate. On days when speeches and debates were heard, all the exits to the Agora were closed, apart from the one that led up to the Pnyx, where the Athenian assembly sat. Slaves with ropes dipped in red paint would chivvy citizens up the slope, marking out for a fine any who dragged their feet or tried to slip away. In Athens, democracy was enforced as rigorously as military discipline was in Sparta. But it wasn't just Athenian political life that had been revolutionized after the defeat of Persia. Everything from commerce to culture was infused with energy and new thinking. Although the Greek alliance had emerged victorious from the war, Persia remained a constant threat. The cities of Greece needed a leader to carry on the fight against the enemy from the east. Sparta had no desire to take on the job. So while it turned its attentions inward, Athens, this confident, outgoing democracy, took the helm and set its course in a different direction. Unlike Sparta, happily landlocked in the Peloponnese, Athens had always been half in love with the sea. With the defeat of the Persians, that love affair was formalized when the city was physically linked to the port of Piraeus by defensive walls. The walls meant that Athens was now officially a sea power, with all that implied in terms of trade, the movement of people in and out, and the potential for empire building. The Athenians devoured their own city to build their walls, scavenging raw material from public monuments, even using headstones from graveyards. The result was 12 miles of imposing fortifications 
erected in record time. As a statement of intent, it certainly packed a punch. A defensive shield designed to keep the wealth of Athens in and unwanted busybodies from neighboring states out. Athens became the policeman of the Eastern Mediterranean. Its allies were expected to toe the line and foot the bill. And if anyone objected, they'd soon find an Athenian fleet in their harbor. It was trireme diplomacy. This shift in the balance of power could hardly have been missed by Sparta. The burgeoning Athenian fleet was evidence enough, but when Sparta discovered that Athens had been building walls, there was even more cause for concern. The Spartans disliked walls because walls defined cities, and cities, if you weren't careful, encouraged other things like democracy. And if there was one thing Sparta distrusted more than walls, it was democracy. Sparta famously had no walls. It was said its walls were its young men and its borders the tips of their spears. For the Spartans, it wasn't laws or walls or magnificent public buildings that made a city. It was their own ideals. In essence, Sparta was a city of the head and the heart, and it existed in its purest form in the disciplined march of a hoplite phalanx on their way to war. Athens and Sparta represented two radically different ways of being. Choosing between them would seem to present no difficulties. Sparta was militaristic and xenophobic. Athens was dynamic and open to the world. But of course, things are never that simple. Athens could be imperialist, arrogant and aggressive, and its democracy excluded women, foreigners and slaves. But for the Greeks, their main problem with Athenian politics was its volatility and the threat that posed to their cherished value of eunomia, or good order. Pindar, the fifth century poet, called eunomia the secure foundation stone of cities. And the Greeks knew from bitter experience what happened when this foundation was threatened. Civil war between the haves and the have-nots. Fields left unharvested blood in the streets. The Spartan system, on the other hand, with its peculiar blend of equality and elitism, held many attractions for the Greeks. Its emphasis on the common good, duty and cohesion seemed to guarantee good order. But for the other Greeks, good order in Sparta was compromised by its extraordinary attitude to sexual politics. Because when it came to women, Conservative Sparta was positively radical. If you were a woman, life in 5th century Athens can't have been much fun. The city may have been at the cutting edge of all that was good in art, architecture and democracy, but these were intended for the consumption of men. Female achievement consisted primarily of playing the part of dutiful, shadowy wife. In fact, in most of ancient Greece, women were expected to be neither seen nor heard. The historian Xenophon recommended that they stay indoors, and for the orator Pericles, it was shameful if they were even mentioned in public. Athenian women led a very sheltered existence. Apart from training for domestic duties, they were given as little education as possible. In a society where women had no say, education must have seemed at best pointless, and at worst, dangerous. An Athenian girl could be married off as young as 12 to a man chosen for her. 
She'd be taken away from her family and would disappear into her husband's house. A woman's role was to manage the family and do the chores, grind corn, wash or bake bread. Rich women who had slaves to take care of the drudgery would spin and sew. There would be the occasional sortie outside to attend to domestic matters or go to a religious ceremony. But basically, life was confined within four walls. In Sparta, by contrast, women were everywhere. Imagine airlifting all the men between the ages of seven and 60 out of the street, and you get a feeling of what it must have been like. For a start, there were more girls than boys because they weren't victims of a state program of infanticide. And if men weren't away fighting or training, they were relaxing with their male colleagues in the common messes. Women would have dominated the day-to-day -day life of the city. The simple visibility of Spartan women made them objects of fear and fascination to non-Spartan men. Homer called Sparta Caliganeca, the land of beautiful women. The beauty of Helen of Troy, originally Helen of Sparta, was legendary. Spartan girls had an upbringing unparalleled anywhere else in Greece. For starters, they were fed the same rations as boys and allowed to drink wine. The state taught them how to sing and dance, to wrestle, to throw the javelin and discus. And they were encouraged to be every bit as competitive as the boys. Girls and boys would exercise naked, but there was nothing immodest about it. Nudity was the norm because it was thought to banish prudery and encourage fitness. It paid off. Physically, they were outstanding. There's a great scene in the comedy Lysistrata by the Athenian playwright Aristophanes. A group of Athenian women crowd round a Spartan woman called Lampito. What a gorgeous creature, they say. What healthy skin, what firmness of physique. And one of them adds, I've never seen a pair of breasts like that. To which Lampito proudly responds, I go to the gym, I make my buttocks hard. Spartan dances were famous for their vitality. In one particularly athletic version, women had to jump up and drum their buttocks with their heels as many times as possible. It's incredibly difficult, but most importantly for the ancients, it revealed a large amount of naked thigh, which is probably where Spartan girls earned their nickname, thigh flashers. As part of their state education, the thigh flashers would come down here to the banks of the Eurotas in what one poet described as the Nicta di Ambrosias, the ambrosial night. The poet goes on to evoke scenes of ritual ecstatic dances and choral contests, the girls singing to each other of limb-loosening desire, tossing their long hair, being ridden like horses and exhausted by love. It's no surprise that Sparta was one of the few ancient cities that had the reputation for encouraging girl-on-girl -girl sex. Women and men in Sparta were used to living separate lives. At the age of seven, boys would be sent away to the agogi, the tough, uncompromising Spartan system where they'd be schooled in the art of war. Male bonding wasn't just encouraged, it was compulsory. At the age of 12, a boy was paired with an older man, usually one of the unmarried warriors aged between 20 and 30. This man would have looked after the boy's material needs and was responsible for his care and conduct. He was a surrogate mother and father, 
as well as a teacher and mentor. But he was also a lover, for institutionalized pederasty was a part and parcel of life for the Spartan warriors. These intimate relationships seem to have had lasting psychological and emotional effects on the men. When the time came for them to get married, it must have been a difficult adjustment to make, but the pragmatic Spartans came up with an unusual way to help them through their wedding night. The Spartans practiced a custom called marriage by capture. On her wedding night, a bride would have her head shaved, like a small boy in the agogi. She'd be dressed in a man's cloak and sandals and left alone in a dark room. Meanwhile, her husband would quietly leave the common mess, come to her, lay her down on a straw pallet, have sex with her, and then slip back to sleep with his comrades as usual. This wasn't just a quaint wedding night ritual. It could carry on for months or even years. There's much debate about the significance of this bizarre ritual. But it seems obvious that it was a piece of sexual theater designed to acclimatize men to the presence of women, when up until then, their only experience of sex had been with other men. And yet, however hard the Spartans tried to make marriage more palatable to their young men, persuading them to do their duty could be problematic. According to one story, which is probably exaggerated, but too good not to repeat, Spartan women would beat men about the head and then drag them around an altar to get them to commit. Sparta was no place for a confirmed bachelor. The treatment meted out to these men may seem extreme, but its severity stemmed from a very real need to produce the next generation of warriors. The obsession with competition and physical fitness for girls reflected the same anxiety. Women were well-fed and well-treated because healthy women were more likely to produce healthy babies. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We've just learned why Sparta was no place for a bachelor, but now Bettany will guide us through the complex role women played in Sparta's development. But Spartan women weren't just baby makers. At a time when Greek women were expected to be invisible, they had power and responsibility in their own right. In fact, they were so cocksure, they dared to take on the men in politics, on the streets, and even in that most sacred bastion, the sporting arena. It wasn't just Spartan women's physicality that shocked the outside world. Their freedom was equally notorious. Aristotle described the place as a gynocratia, a state run by women, and he didn't mean it as a compliment. In Athens and other Greek cities, women were not allowed to own land or to control large amounts of wealth. Heiresses and widows married according to the wishes of fathers or brothers, usually to cousins or uncles, in order to keep the wealth in the family. And with the exception of traveling in ox-drawn carts to weddings and funerals, riding would have been out of the question. But in Sparta, women had the keys to the coffers. They could be landowners and property holders in their own right. They could inherit estates and even seem to have had the right to choose who or even whether to marry. So you have to imagine these economically independent women riding out to oversee their states and slaves, cracking the whip, running things. Unless you believe the myth of the Amazons, this was a sight unprecedented anywhere else in the ancient world. Whereas laws in Athens were drawn up that restricted women's visibility in public, some Spartan women actually achieved the unthinkable. They became celebrities. The most famous example was Kyniska, a Spartan princess and, in her day, a sporting legend. Kyniska means little hound, and she was obviously a tomboy from a sporty family. The names of her female relations translate as things like well-horsed, flash of lightning, she who leads from the front. But it would be Kaniska who'd go down in the history books as the owner of a champion chariot team. Kaniska was an equestrian expert and very wealthy, the perfect qualifications for a successful trainer. She didn't race herself, but employed men to drive, and she made no secret of her ambition. She entered her team at the Olympic Games, the showcase for outstanding athletes from all over the Greek world. It won. The men were astounded. Four years later, she entered again. She won again. The bitter irony is that Kaniska probably didn't see her victories. At Olympia, the usual all-male rules applied. But she made certain that the world wouldn't miss out on her success. She dedicated a monument to herself right in the heart of the Olympic sanctuary. The inscription read, I, Kaniska, victorious with a chariot of swift-footed horses, have erected this statue, and declare I am the only woman in all of Greece to have won this crown. But women weren't only powerful in the sporting arena. Spartan women also played a role in the political life of the city. They were trained to speak in public, and although they had no official place in the decision-making process, they made sure their opinions were heard. And it was the women who seemed to have been the most vociferous when it came to enforcing the warrior ethic. Sparta's unwritten laws were policed at street level by a kind of community-based rough justice. Women were in the forefront, praising the brave and insulting cowards as they passed. You get an idea of the kind of things they'd have called out from a collection called The Sayings of the Spartan Women. 
In Athens, silence was a mark of breeding, but Spartan girls were positively lippy. They were masters in the art of laconic speaking, named after Laconia, the heartland of Sparta. Deployed properly, a laconic phrase could draw blood from the skin of even the most armour-plated warrior. Although Spartan women enjoyed freedom of speech and financial liberty, it would be a mistake to paint a picture of Sparta as a kind of feminist wonderland. You should think of Spartan women as regimental wives, the backbone of the system, breeding sons and then surrendering them to the agogi when they turned seven. Because Sparta was constantly anxious about its decline in birth rate, every Spartan boy must have been the apple of his mother's eye. Helots were there to do the domestic chores and there was plenty of time to dote on little Leonidas. But when the time came to send him off to the agogi, though it must have been a wrench, it was done without hesitation. This was Sparta and maternal instincts came a poor second to the interests of the state. Our concept of motherhood is of a tender, supportive relationship between mother and child. But in Sparta, there was little room for sentimentality. In a state where unswerving obedience to the warrior code was rated more highly than life itself, mothers wanted to make absolutely sure that sons did their duty. Their approach was more Nazi than nurture. When a son left for battle, his mother would issue a traditional farewell. With your shield or on it. In other words, either come back victorious or come back dead. But if a son failed to live up to this injunction, he could expect little sympathy from mum. One story goes that a mother confronting her runaway son hitched up her skirts and asked him if he intended to crawl back where he'd come from. Following the defeat of Persia, there'd been few opportunities for Spartan men to make their mothers proud. But that was all about to change. Since the Persian invasion, Sparta and Athens had coexisted peacefully. Against all the odds, the alliance had held firm. But given the huge ideological differences between these two Greek superpowers, it was almost inevitable that at some point, mutual mistrust would boil over into outright conflict. In the end, it took one catastrophic event to shake the foundations of the alliance and set Sparta and Athens on a collision course. In the year 465 BC, a series of massive earthquakes hit Sparta. The consequences were devastating. The loss of life was immense. But the earthquakes also gave a golden opportunity to Sparta's enemy within. The huge population of helots whose slave labor propped up the Spartan system. In the aftermath of the earthquakes, the helots seized their chance and revolted. The rebel slaves came here to Mount Ithome at the heart of Messene, the homeland that had been taken from them by the Spartans. They fortified the position and waited for the Spartans to come. For all its fearsome reputation, Sparta failed to put down the revolt. And with the conflict dragging on, it was forced to appeal to Athens and its other allies for assistance. Spartan allies sent over troops to help put down the revolt and the Athenians brought in siege equipment, technology not developed by the hidebound Spartans. It was then that the Spartans began to fret. Enslavement of the Messenians had always been a slightly sticky issue. 
as a whole, the Greeks had absolutely no problem with slavery. But when it came to subjugating an entire native Greek population, it was less easy to swallow. The Spartans knew this, and that's when paranoia set in. What would happen if the Athenians sided with the rebels, or even worse, spread the virus of democracy among Spartan citizens themselves? It was a risk not worth taking, and they sent the Athenians home. Athens took serious offence at its dismissal by the Spartans. Being summarily sent home with no explanation was not the treatment they'd expected from an ally who they'd only been trying to help. The Athenians tore up the old Treaty of Allegiance and began to collude with Sparta's enemies. And to add insult to injury, they even helped the rebels who'd managed to escape by setting them up in a new city. It was the beginning of open hostilities. Sparta and Athens would soon be at war, this time with each other. When the war between Sparta and Athens finally came, it had many apparent causes, but the simple truth was that over a period of 50 years, Sparta had allowed Athens to get so powerful that its own sphere of influence on the mainland of the Peloponnese was now under threat. Seizing upon a rather flimsy pretext, Sparta declared war in 431 BC. It sent troops to invade Athenian territory. They forced their way to within seven miles of the hated city walls of Athens itself. The one-time allies were now mortal enemies. The vicious fighting dragged on as neither side was able to land the killer blow. The war quickly became a stalemate, with Sparta dominant on land and Athens at sea. Every year for five years, Spartan armies laid waste to Athenian territory, burning farms and destroying crops. The Athenians fled from the countryside and withdrew behind the walls that connected their city to the port of Piraeus. They became, in effect, islanders, marooned and reliant on their fleet to keep them supplied. Within a year, plague came to the overcrowded city. Corpses were piled high in the streets and almost a third of the population of Athens was wiped out. The historian Thucydides described the sufferings of the Athenian plague victims as almost beyond the capacity of human nature to endure. Wealth and power were no protection. Pericles himself succumbed to the virulent disease. For Sparta, the decimation of Athens and its leaders was proof that the gods were on their side. But gods can be fickle. According to Thucydides, who was an eyewitness to much of the war, nothing shocked the Greeks so much as something that happened on that island in Sparta's very own backyard. Pylos was a port on the west coast of the Peloponnese and of major strategic importance to the Spartans. In the year 425 BC, it was seized by the Athenian army, helped by the former slaves who'd revolted against Sparta after the earthquake. The Spartans couldn't stomach this provocation and sent an army to retake Pylos. They laid siege to the Athenians in the town and set up a smaller unit on the mile and a half of rock that stretches across Pylos Bay, the island of Sphacteria. 
Their plan was to blockade the Athenians by land and water. But I think they'd forgotten who they were dealing with. The Athenians were totally at home on the sea, and within a few days, they'd sent a large fleet into Pylos Bay. They seized control of all of these waters. The tables had been turned. Sparta was forced to withdraw, leaving behind the 400 or so troops who'd been posted on the island of Sphacteria. They were trapped, and for 72 days, there was a standoff. The stalemate was finally broken when the Spartans scored a spectacular own goal. A group of soldiers stupidly let a campfire get out of control. It raged across the island, burning off all the protective cover. The Spartans had nowhere to hide. The Athenians could now see exactly how many they were and where they were. The Athenians decided to try and take the island with 800 archers and 800 lightly armed troops. The Athenians landed, but they refused to fight the Spartans at close quarters. Instead, they picked them off with javelins and arrows and rocks. Whenever the Spartan phalanx advanced, the Athenians retreated. Soon it was the Spartans who were backing off, leaving behind them 300 dead as the survivors headed for a defensive position at the north end of the island. But an Athenian commander sent a detachment of archers to cut them off from behind. The Spartans were surrounded. It looked as if this were going to be a mini Thermopylae in the making. Over 50 years before, King Leonidas and his 300 hand-picked troops had sacrificed their lives for the glory of Sparta at the Battle of Thermopylae. For the Spartans on Sphacteria, there was no higher ideal to aspire to. Hopelessly outnumbered by the Athenians, this was their chance to emulate the heroics of their grandfathers and bring honor to the state. They knew exactly what was expected of them. A heroic struggle, a beautiful death, the final test passed. But that wasn't what happened at all. The Athenians were far too smart. They held back for a while and then politely sent over a herald to ask if the Spartans would like to surrender. And unbelievably, that's exactly what they did. If we were talking about anyone other than Spartans, surrender wouldn't have been a surprise. After all, these half-starved men had been trapped on the island for more than two months and used by the Athenian archers daily for target practice. But these were Spartans. They'd spent their lives preparing to die fighting. Surrender shouldn't have been an option. So maybe Pericles had been right in his famous speech with its mockery of the Spartans' state-induced courage. On this occasion, that manufactured bravery had been undermined by the tactical nous and mind games of the Athenians. First, they'd refused to give the Spartans what they'd wanted, a stand-up fight. And then they'd given them something they'd never expected, an opt-out clause from their death or glory contract. The myth of Spartan invincibility had been comprehensively shattered. For Athens, it was a victory to savour. There's a remarkable relic from that shocking defeat here in Athens. It's a shield, probably taken from one of the hoplites who'd thrown in the towel. Judging from its condition, whoever it belonged to would have been put through the mill. 
You can just about make out an inscription on its battered surface that would have been punched in at a later date. It simply reads, taken by the Athenians from the Laconians at Pylos. It's a terse, triumphant message. Along with this trophy, 120 Spartans were brought to the city as hostages. If Sparta made so much as a move on Athenian territory, they were to be executed. The Spartan hostages were objects of fascination in Athens, where they were displayed in public like exotic animals. You can imagine the Athenians jostling to gawp at their strange captives, sizing them up, jeering. Thucydides tells us that one of the crowd asked mockingly if the real Spartans had died on the island. Spindles would be worth a great deal, came the Spartan reply, if they could mark out brave men from cowards. Spindles was the Spartan word for arrows, a weapon they considered wimpy and womanish because they killed from a long distance. It was meant to be a crushing response delivered in true laconic style, but it comes across as plain sulky. Sparta was so rattled by the events on Sphacteria that it immediately sued for peace. But Athens was in no mood to be generous. It capitalised on its advantage and held out for better terms. It would be five years before the Spartan hostages saw their home again. But when they returned, they suffered none of the punishments usually meted out to so-called tremblers. They were not stripped of their citizenship, they were not forbidden to walk around with cheerful faces, and they were not beaten up in the streets. For once, the women kept their cutting comments to themselves. Spartan society was polaxed. But before long, the laughter and mockery of the Athenians would be silenced as the final act of this bloody war was played out. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for this week's episode of The Spartans, but tune in next week for the finale of this three-part series. If you can't wait to learn more, you can head over to our YouTube channel, where we've got even more documentaries for you to enjoy. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review as well. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.